Good morning. This is Tommy Ray, and we're in episode 16 of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. This episode is titled, To Know Where You're Going, You Gotta Know Where You've Been. We've gotten drenched with knowledge about groundwater, but as I hinted, groundwater may be making a comeback, particularly if you can find an aquifer that easily lets you replace water that has been taken out. We will talk about that in the following episode. Before we continue to wade through the weeds deeper into water rights and how, when, where they are used, we should think back a little on where we've been. I don't want to repeat myself. Plus, I want to make sure some of the basics are understood. It may also help you remember some of the terms and get a mental picture of some of the terminology used. In episodes one and two, we talked about how water rights were formed, how I got involved, and then moved toward the fact that reallocation of existing water rights is the only new source of surface water rights. I emphasize surface water rights. Groundwater is different because it is legally owned by the overlying surface owner. Yes, and the overlying owner can apply for a permit and use that groundwater, or he can sell it. But we've learned that groundwater may have its own set of problems. If it's tributary, it is administered as if it were surface water. And if it's non-tributary, it may not recharge, And that has its own set of problems, like running out of water, as we saw in Parker and Castle Rock. In episodes 3, 4, and 5, we went into details about how hard, or nowadays practically impossible, to build new reservoirs, which has resulted in cities buying ag water rights. We detailed that farmers own most of the water, and how some of that water is being transferred, or, as in Thornton's case, attempting to transfer, to municipal use. And buy and dry is a political football. But really, should it be? After all, water is the farmer's 401k plan, and most have seen their 401ks double in five years and probably will double again. I wish my 401k was doing that. If there were no municipal demand, the 401k plans would sink to the bottom. It is the municipal demand that increases the price of water. If I were a farmer, I would cheer for continued municipal demand. Or maybe I would sell and move to a wetter part of the country where it rains enough to grow crops and I wouldn't have to work so hard irrigating my land. I would move east of the 100th meridian. We're going to talk about the 100th meridian in just a minute or two. In episodes 6 through 9, we talked about the Platte being a man-controlled ditch, how it is essentially all sewage return flows, how there is really nothing wrong with recycling wastewater, but let's be honest about it. We also talked about how attempts at new reservoirs continue to flounder 
and how complicated ditches get with several water rights within a single ditch. Then we tried to leave the Front Range and talked about the Colorado River and its compact in Episode 10. We hit only the highlights. Those were interesting. With this minimal information, you can easily research on the Internet anything else you want to know about the Colorado River and its compact. We'll go back to the Colorado when we start traveling to other parts of the state. We touched on the headwaters of the Colorado in Grand County in Episode 11. Here, we learned that Northern Colorado Water Conservancy District is clearly the biggest trans-mountain diverter in the state. In fact, about four times as much as anyone else, and probably three times as much as all others combined. In 12 and 13, we started talking about water prices, how some industries like oil and gas don't need water rights, they only need water. A water right entitles its owner to the appropriated amount every year into perpetuity. Oil and gas only needs water once. And we talked about accounting practices for water in the streams. And in 14 and 15, we talked about non-tributary groundwater in Douglas County. That brings us up to where we are now. Where else will this podcast series go? There are so many complexions to water use that it is practically endless what we can talk about. I am somewhat embarrassed that we have mainly focused on the front range. Well, this is where 80% of the people in Colorado live and where I have practically all my experience. I have put out feelers to other parts of the state for guests to be interviewed about how water impacts life in those other parts of the state. I ask your patience if you are hankering for a look at other geographic areas. Maybe we eventually go to other states like Texas and Arizona, but there is still so much to talk about here in our state. Last week, I listened to an economic panel discussing worldwide water issues. Hey, there are problems with water availability everywhere. But one thing stood out. In all cases, they talked about how geography is the controlling factor in water. Geography is of utmost importance. In other words, water is going to flow down the valley in which it fell. Man came along and superimposed artificial boundaries like national boundaries, state boundaries, and county boundaries. And if the water is within their boundary, the residents of that governmental entity sometimes act as if they own it. This is happening in Larimer County. When John Wesley Powell explored and later mapped the West, he emphasized that those governmental boundaries should match the geography. Counties should have been farmed around watersheds. But that didn't happen, and now we have, and will continue to have, inter-county and interstate squabbles over water. 
but you already know that. As I talk about this, I remember what Patty Limerick said. When you pile a bunch of people in a dense urban area, that will create a need for more water than the immediate area offers. This theme was repeated in last week's international water discussion. Urban areas worldwide are forced to go outside their boundaries for more water. Some cities have relied on renewable groundwater beneath the city, but that sometimes causes subsidence. Jakarta, with a population of over 10 million, is sinking because of groundwater withdrawal below the city. They are having to relocate portions of that city to avoid further sinking. Luckily, we have seen no subsidence in Colorado due to groundwater withdrawal, and we don't have to talk about saltwater intrusion. But many other things to talk about. I have a growing list, and it just seems to get bigger. A couple that might seem strange to you are terms like water buffaloes and paper water. Before we get to these two, let's provide some mental pictures of water use. Remember that farmers use such large amounts of water, they invented new words, acre feet and cubic feet per second. An acre foot is the amount of water that would cover one acre one foot deep. Okay, that's clear, but most of us can't visualize how big an acre is. Well, it's about 10% less than the playing area of a football field. That's the area within the out-of-bounds lines and the goal lines. A football field is 100 yards long by 53 and a third yards wide. That's 300 feet by 160 feet or 48,000 square feet. An acre, thanks to our beautiful English system, is 43,560 square feet. Ain't that ridiculous? So an acre is a little less than the playing surface of a football field. Hey, if I'm going to make a respectable engineer out of you, you have to be able to visualize these things. What else should you be able to visualize? Another number. Flow rates are important. Water rights are defined in terms of flow. CFS, cubic feet per second. One CFS equal 449 gallons per minute. Call it 450 gallons per minute. This is about the amount of water coming out of a normal size fire hose that you see firemen putting on burning buildings. One CFS is equal to 1.98 acre feet per day, rounded off to two acre feet per day. So if you were running water onto the football field at the rate of a fire hose, one CFS, it would take 12 hours to cover that field to a depth of one foot. So now you have an idea of how much water one acre foot is and how long it takes to fill an acre feet. Got it? Don't get too concerned. When I see a ditch or river running and the farmer tells me that it's running at 5 CFS, 
I still have a hard time grasping how much water that really is. Even as I see it flowing by, I can't tell how much ground that water would cover. So over the growing season in eastern Colorado, a farmer typically puts about two to three acre feet of water onto every acre he irrigates. If he is irrigating 200 acres, that's a hell of a lot of water. And there are thousands of farmers irrigating that much and more. I reviewed my notes. In Colorado, there are 2.5 million acres being irrigated, so about 2.5 million acre-feet of consumptive use. That would equate to something close to 7.5 million acre-feet of one-time-use water being applied to irrigated lands. I'm not complaining. Just want us all to visualize how much water we use. And remember that the upper basin states are supposed to leave 7.5 million acre-feet per year in the Colorado River at Lees Ferry, Arizona. Now, what about the 100th meridian? Many of you never think about meridian. What is a meridian? It's an imaginary line running from the North Pole to the South Pole along the surface of the Earth. For navigation purposes, the early sailors divided the Earth into 360 meridians. The zero meridian is in Greenwich, England. Not sure exactly where that is, but I think we all remember this from the fourth grade or maybe the sixth grade. Anyway, the hundredth meridian is the eastern line of the Texas Panhandle. You will probably read about the 100th meridian in novels or textbooks. If you extend that imaginary line north, it goes through the western half of Kansas, about the middle of Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota. It's not exact, but more or less east of that line, about 30 inches or more of rain falls annually. Now, guess what? That is the amount of moisture needed to grow crops. Everything on the west side of that line gets less than 30 inches of rainfall and thus needs to be irrigated. The Front Range area, which includes Greeley and the farmlands east of Greeley, gets about 11 inches of rainfall. Clearly, farmers here need to add more water they need at least another two feet of water. Typically, they add two to three feet per irrigated acre. I guess over time, farmers in this area have learned that's the amount of additional water they should add. Anyway, just something else for you to know about water. This also applies to city water use. In the East and Midwest, there is very little watering of yards. So cities in the West generally use more water per capita than cities east of the 100th meridian. I wonder if there are any irrigated lands in Nevada. I'll have to look that up and get back to you. Let's talk about other fun terms. Water buffaloes and paper water. What were or are water buffaloes? When I first got involved with water, 
I heard the term water buffaloes a lot. Not so much anymore. According to the Denver Post in March 2004, water buffaloes were, quote, men with the power to dig up graveyards and redirect rivers hundreds of miles from the mountains to the cities. The Post said they have all but disappeared. These were men that seemingly had power to bring water to the masses. They had, quote, the ability to work political deals, snare chunks of federal money, and trample environmentalists and small-town opponents. They made Colorado what it is today, with its sprawling front-range cities and eastern plains farms on land that was once bone-dry. The Post article named five men as water buffaloes. They were all born in the early 1900s and, of course, are gone now, but their legacies remain. Wayne Aspinall was probably the granddaddy of the buffaloes. He was a U.S. congressman. He is best known for the Colorado River Storage Project, consisting of three dams on the Gunnison River. The largest is the Blue Mesa, completed in 1966. The other two are the Morrill Point, completed in 1968, and the Crystal, completed in 1976. Aspinall died in 1983. W.D. Farr was the driving force behind formation of Northern Colorado Water Conservancy District. He was a rancher in Weld County. He was just 21 when he joined the local water board in 1930. Within two decades, he led the charge to bring water 250 miles from western rivers to the east slope. He disliked the term water buffalo and said they were just guys who knew how to get things done. He died in 2007 at the age of 97. Glenn Saunders was mainly known as the attorney for the Denver Water Department. He fought hard to obtain water rights and get Dillon Reservoir built. Dillon was completed in 1963 and supplies about one-fourth of all Denver's water. Because a graveyard would be inundated, he had all the graves dug up and relocated higher up on the hill. This didn't sit well with many locals. Saunders died in 1990. Felix Sparks was the chairman of the Colorado Water Conservancy Board from 1958 to 1979. He served in World War II and became a brigadier general. It was his unit that liberated the Nazis' concentration camp at Dachau. He later served on the Colorado Supreme Court. He was instrumental in getting the Frying Pan Arkansas Project completed in 1985. The Frying Pan Arkansas Project consists of five reservoirs with nine tunnels that divert water from around Aspen. According to the Post, this project can store enough water to serve 1.7 million households and provide supplemental water to farms in southeastern Colorado. Wow, he seems to have been superhuman, a man's man. He died in 2007. I wish I could have met him. 
The fifth water buffalo was John Fletcher. His most recognized project was the Stagecoach Reservoir south of Steamboat Springs. It was completed in 1988. Fletcher died in 2009. So, are there any more water buffaloes out there? I can think of one individual who might deserve that title, Bob Lemke. We'll try to interview him. He made a big splash in the papers about 15 years ago. He understood the legal system that prohibits speculation in water. He farmed a tiny government on one acre of rural ground that had big powers to buy water and resell it to future developments. Hooray for Bob to skirt this ridiculous law that prevents speculating in water. Through his efforts, the southeast metro area now has water that it wouldn't have had before. More on Bob in a later episode. Enough of water buffaloes. Maybe they can drink paper water. Sounds like a pretty funny term. We all know what wet water is. It's water that comes out of your faucet or is in a stream or a reservoir. You can touch it and taste it. Wet water seems to be redundant. But sometimes we use the term wet water to distinguish it from a water right that although decreed for a certain use, doesn't actually produce water. What? Sometimes a right may not be able to produce water because the stream is running dry or the right is junior and essentially out of priority all the time. Sure, the owner has a right to water on paper, but it doesn't produce, quote, wet water. If you're buying a property with water rights, you want to be sure you understand how much water it actually produces. If none, you are buying paper water. Same with a well permit. You may have permitted a thousand acre feet a year from the overlying land that you own. But if the well or wells don't physically produce that much water, you own a lot of paper water. I guess that's clear. As always, we seem to have covered a lot of ground. If it were an acre, would we have an acre foot of BS? I guess we can have an acre foot of more than just water. Anyway, as always, it's been fun. And remember, you can leave feedback on the website, nowater.com, K-N-O-W hyphen water.com. Some people have bought me a cup of coffee. If you want, you're always welcome to do that. And next time, we're going to talk about using groundwater again, essentially as an underground reservoir. I look forward to Adam Joker's comments. Let's retreat to our mountain stream. See you next time. (laughs) 